Uh, so I've got a soundboard that I've been using. Uh, well, I to listen to keep... the Peter Kavanagh, so well, I'm, I'm gonna... well aware of the soundboard. <laughs> Excellent. Then you yeah. know that uh, I'm trying to work in custom intros. So have you got a request Super. for walk-on music? Oh, for me? Uh, yeah. So I think I it, it would have to be uh, the Charpentier theme from the Eurovision, obviously, because it's what I'm usually brought into anyway. So yeah. I thought that, so let me yeah. cue that up and I'll give you a custom intro. Uh <laughs> when it comes to tweeting he cannot be beaten you want trivia about Eurovision songs this man has never been wrong he's a doctor now and that's pretty swell but what does the PhD stand for we'll never tell guys gals not binary pals he's tall dark and handsome he's all that and then some it's Dr. Donald Mulligan Doctor Donald <laughs> Wow, wow, thank you That's, uh, I, I would be really complimented But I did listen to the previous one And I know you recycled some of those uh, lines The Tall, Dark and Handsome But from <gasps> Peter Kavanagh So I'm just getting used second-hand poetry no, here, I, I, Tall, Dark and Handsome, All That and Then Some is, I do, I've been using that just in general in day-to-day life I just like it mm. I really liked guys, gals, and non-binary pals. That was That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I like that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so, awesome. Did you invent that? I don't think I did. I think no. I stole that from Kenji, a chef, like an internet chef. So, Fair is enough. there anything original in this? I mean, that's very fitting for what we're about to talk I mean, about—the fact that everyone just takes and recycles what they find <laughs> online. So, I made I made this sound. Like that's did me, you know? or is that just sampled? There's your answer. Oh, okay. No, no, nothing's original. Nothing's ever yeah. original. Nothing, well, nothing under the sun is original. That's, that's the whole point. Yeah. Uh, Especially um, having Donald Mulligan as a guest on What I'm Politics. What could be less original than this now? I think this is your seventh appearance. Is it? Oh my God. Yeah, probably. One yeah. for every Eurovision. So that's five, is it? Or yeah. four? And then, five. and then we did one on the social media one. Social media. We did one on, ga- on gaming. And the gaming one. So yeah. that is so seven. This yeah. is number Gosh, seven. Wow, oh, this is number eight. This is number eight then, possibly. Wow. Well, you will all be relieved to hear. This is the last this one. Is the last this has one. to be the last one. It is, you know, it's, it's sad to hear it winding down. I, I, I had mixed feelings about it, I'm sure, I'm sure you did too, but I sort of agreed. I've, I've seen too many things that I've liked and were good go too long and become bad and I, I think you're right I think like this is it's like, still just going like this well show. Still, yeah, no, it, no this show has managed to <laughs> cling on for its very no I'm joking uh, this, no I, I think I think this has, has done very well and I think some of the recent episodes I listened to I really enjoyed so it's not it's not at all you know as as stretched thin as some other things that have you know Netflix series where there's one season too many or two seasons too many or yeah Game it's, of Thrones. It's easy to continue when there's like you can't do a cash grab when there's no cash to grab. So that does. True. Yeah, yeah. So that. Oh yeah, if we were getting yeah. paid for this shit, we would be going yeah. until we were long in the tooth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Did you have you tried honestly? You know, in in the was there a period where you said actually we should really try and monetize this and we'll push very heavily and we'll Joe. No, not really. Out of no, that that speaks no. to a degree of effort of, that neither Steve or I are capable okay. of. Not just effort, it. but you you need big cojones to be able to do that. 
You're basically begging people for money. The other yeah. one is for someone to turn around and give us money. We were waiting for that. Yeah. We're still waiting for that. Uh, everyone's waiting for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is there like but, a podcast uh, no. confirmation or communion day? Where you do? <laughs> um, All your aunties and uncles just give you a fiver each. and then That's basically what's been going on, yeah. which isn't enough to add up to True. keep it going. But we are appreciative of everyone that has given us any little bit of money. Mm-hmm. That has been fantastic. Let's not be dismissive of that. But in terms of doing it enough to make it a professional thing, yeah. we... We, we ain't got that yeah. cut that you need to be, what, what do you, I think you called it something before, se- huh? uh, selling or shilling or something. I'm sure it was a very enlightening Sh- and poetic, but I just can't remember. <laughs> but there is, I mean, there, there are very few podcasts that make that jump well and that then don't become somehow affected by what they do. And I mean, there, there's ones that I've listened to over the years that's uh, 99% Invisible is a good example. Roman Mars is a fantastic podcast that, that went for very many years. And he, you know, he's an extremely wealthy man now. I saw that he left. Spotify gave him loads yeah, of money. Yeah, he, he gave one or several of his millions to, to uh, Radiolab and things like that. So, he, you know, he obviously kept a few as well. And, you know, that was a big deal. But they are few and far between. Mm. And even there where that happened with an already good podcast, there's a lot of negative stuff said about that now. And I saw a lot of kind of, you know, antagonistic comments about him on Twitter and stuff afterwards and, and things like that. So it's, you know, no matter what way that transition is managed, it's a tough one. And You're right, so few one. who get to manage it at all. We are too pure. Exactly. Well done on, on your moral stance. <laughs> yeah. Don't, have you ever considered doing anything like this? Like you're a very eloquent man. You've, you're very well educated and you would, yours is a perspective and opinion that, you know, I think a lot of people do value by virtue of the fact you've been on this show more than anyone else. Um, just well, from our perspective. You two value it. Well, yeah, but you know what I mean? But I think I like to think we're, we're, we're every men, we're, you know, men of the <laughs> sure, people, sure. salt of the earth type thing. But were you ever like tempted to do a YouTube channel or a podcast or anything like that? I've never Not asked a you that. YouTube channel. Because you're also, sorry, you're also YouTube. like a multimedia person. You know these, like how yeah. to do these things. And I, I mean, I, I lecture this, you know, stuff all the time. That's part of my job. Mm. So, yeah, there's 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 one thing in particular. There, there's my favorite uh, module that I teach in DCU uh, is one for first year students in, in communications and multimedia called Media Theory and History. And it's really interesting for a lay person and a, or for a first year student to come into because it kind of tracks, you know, the invention of writing and language and the printing press. And it's it's, you know, it's a bit of a generalized uh, kind of tour through where we are at the moment up to kind of social media and participatory media that we have now. And I've always thought that would be an interesting one to do a sort of um, episodic journey through a la History of Rome or Tides of History or those. I I listen to a lot of those kinds of Mm. podcasts where it's, you know, it's factual stuff, but it's well scripted and well delivered. And by virtue of the fact that I have to script, you know, the, the stuff that I do, possibly at some stage. So the answer is yes, my I've wallet, thought about it, but... Yeah. My wallet's not on me, but can I give you 50 quid for this Kickstarter? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll, I'll <laughs> with, with enough bottles of wine, I mean, I'm, I'm drinking this class. And so by the end of this, I, we could be... We could uh, be recording, recording episode one. Steve, yeah. Steve, next year, let's just enroll in this class and just sit down the back with recorders and we'll just steal this podcast <laughs> right from underneath. I'm shocked no student has done that so far anyway, considering, you see, they're not media savvy enough in first year. Maybe that's it. If I gave this in third year... Well, that's a failing on, you, on, on your part if they're not it media is. savvy enough. I don't know. No, no. By the end of it, they'd re- they wish they had done it, you see. So they learn uh, it from Donald and then they wish they I, I have had students, and I'm, I'm not going to name anybody, but if you're a listening student who did this, I know about you. Uh, students who've taken my, my classes, my class notes and stuff, and uh, just just changed the name on the slide to their name and then rethought it as a thing that they got paid for. No! And yeah, some, somebody was at a thing in a, a, a city centre institution that is uh, not a, a university, but in the third level education space generally, and... Uh, Somebody I know happened to be at a, a thing there that was about kind of programming for the web, uh, which is one of the things I thought. 
And they said, gosh, this, these slides look very familiar because they have quite a distinctive <laughs> template. I don't use a standard distinctive template. style. Yeah. yeah. And they, they were, so they, they took some sneaky pictures and they sent it to me. And I was like, yep, yep, those are, those are actually just my slides directly lifted. And then I saw who was teaching it and recognized them from the prior year as a student. Wow. So they had just kind of like lifted the content. So someone will do this. And as, as we said at the start of this, everything, nothing is new. Everything is recycled. Everything is re-edited. So uh, yeah, I should get in there before somebody else does, basically. That's a good segue to talk about our episode topic, which is a repeat of our first conversation with you, <laughs> yeah. basically. I think we did What I'm Social Media, but we're going to broaden it to What I'm the Internet, mm. only because What I'm Social Media 2.0 is just too lame, even yeah. for us. But it is, I was I was thinking about this on the way here, and it really is staggering how much has changed even in the, you know, what what year did we do that? I can't, I wasn't even sure. 2017? Yeah, yeah so just I mean, after like, Trump. I'll, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was it was in the, the, the start of that era. And now we have lived through that. And now we're, you know... Even in the short time, the the efforts that we're now seeing being made to control some of these platforms, the moderation stuff, the new insane platforms that are being uh, kind of theorized or have been tried, Parler or Trump's Truth Social or whatever nonsense that is. Um, yeah, there, a lot has happened. We could definitely still call it social media because there's just a ton that has occurred, some of which we predicted, some of which no one could ever have predicted. But it's, yeah, it's been an interesting few years. Before we get into the nitty gritty, this is something that I didn't know I I, I should have asked because mm-hmm. I have since done a master's taught by fine people such as Donald. Mm. Um, <laughs> but there's a thing called the public sphere mm. that is mostly an academic thing. It doesn't normally get brought up that often outside of it, but it's quite important, especially for things like democracy. So could you very briefly give our listeners uh, a, a, a quick rundown sure. as to what the public sphere is and how it fits into democracy? So the public sphere is uh, this... Uh, a guy called Jürgen Habermas uh, is the, the kind of theorist who, who gave us this. And it's a kind of succinct summary of a very old idea that there exists a kind of sphere of participation generally in a society where people can turn up and talk about the issues of the day and feel both that they are sharing their interpretations with one another and therefore contributing to an understanding of what's going on, but also shaping it. So they might come together, form a small party or form a pressure group about a topic. So you are participating in the public sphere if you are a politician, but you're also participating it if you meet with some local residents in your housing estate and you decide to lobby your politician to have a change made to your road or something like that. And it's really, the public sphere is is a very communications-y topic because it's essentially defined in its extent by what communications technologies we have to do the talking in the first place. And so the public sphere has grown enormously in the last decades because more and more people can take part in those kind of discussions. And the, the kind of classic formulation of it that Habermas points to originally is the idea of more well-to-do middle-class people meeting in coffee houses in the 1700s, this kind of thing, the, the idea of the salon where you would go share ideas, etc. And so there's a very rose-tinted version of social media as the new <laughs> space of ideas shaping and whatever um, that, that you know, kind of shows its extension, the internet, blogging, all of these other things. Each Each kind of advance in widespread communication technology as it's come has always been heralded as a new addition to the public sphere, which keeps growing and growing. But that's in more recent times being uh, questioned a bit more, including by myself, that really is that actually making a difference or is that just new places that the same people are saying the same things in largely? <laughs> and I think we need to be quite critical about where the sphere really is and who's actually loudest in it. So how does like the advent of the internet and then social media affected the, how we interpret this sphere or what happens in it because like mm. I don't think it's like a lot of people refer to like tweeting as like shouting into the void or you mm. know like there isn't I don't think mass illusion is to the fact that this is a bit of a shallow medium yeah. sometimes yeah. so is it just like bigger but 
hollower and emptier and not as not as as potent. And to add on to that as well, is it the public sphere when there's lads giving out about things in the pub? Yeah, I mean, it is. It is to an extent. Yeah. So is Twitter I mean, just that online? Yeah, but Twitter is all of that online. So Twitter is the equivalent of the politician giving a press release and it's the equivalent of the pressure group meeting about a particular thing. It's, you know, it, it contains all of these things. And because it reflects that whole totality, it's easy to pick a particular part of that, good or bad, and say, oh, this is all it's ever doing. It's just people shouting at one another or it's just, you know, lefties who are, you know, motivated towards communism or whatever it is. Um, it's it's just it's a big space with a lot going on in it. But I think at its heart, it has made a difference to the total amount of people who participate in that sort of what we might generally call public discourse, talking and sharing ideas about where things are going, how things are at the moment, where there's areas for improvement, where there's things to give out about. And it you don't measure it by whether or not it's effective in creating the change. You measure it by whether you can participate in it or not. And I suppose there's a uh, the, the changes that the internet have brought and social media later have brought is just the amount of people who can partake in this. And do you have something on your soundboard that's that's ominous and scary? Because I'm about to mention something very Marxist here. Woo-hoo! So just to set the tone for Marx, do you have a, a sort of a, a low rumbling? That, oh, perfect. So to take a Marxist perspective, <laughs> uh, Marx is very interested in this idea that there are these defined technological changes that no, happen. No, that, no, that no, no. Like, no that, that's too joyous. We want, we want it sinister. A spectre haunts Europe, Richie. Um, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Minor key, a little bit discordant. Um, he, he thinks that technology is what shapes society. That's that, you know. On a big scale, the technology that came in in the Industrial Revolution changed the way we all live, changed the way we relate to each other. But loads of people, especially in in my area and kind of communications, media scholars, uh, think the same thing about individual kinds of of communicative technologies. New things come along, they change who gets to participate, which over time changes the way people relate to each other, changes the, the place they see themselves having in society, the power they think they have to change things, all that sort of stuff. And there's no question at all that... There's an extension of that when you get the internet first, just in people being able to self-publish things. People, you know, I can make my own website about a topic. Blogs. Blogs. Message Podcasts. boards. Yeah. Like even before the the World Wide Web in, in 1991, there's Usenet and there's the, those kind of bulletin board systems in the 80s even where people are meeting, sharing stuff. Uh, and there's political ones of those. You get that moving into more mainstream stuff. You have the blogging thing is very web 2.0 early 2000s it's very west wing it is yeah actually yes cassette in that same period yeah and and i mean the the west wing even deals with the kind of the era of the drudge report and how much that changed journalism mm. and you know so there's no question that politics journalism our conceptions of what news is all change when the internet grows and then each new thing comes along yeah, so you have the facebooks and the twitters and they change it as well and so journalism is utterly changed by the existence of twitter i think but so is the idea of people getting together finding out information about a topic and either shouting at one another, as they certainly do in, in their multitudes, but also occasionally coalescing around something and affecting some change of some kind. And so the public sphere has all of that in it, whether it's positive or negative. And it's, yeah, you can draw a line as to whether you think it's overall a good or a bad thing, but there's no question that the public sphere is bigger than it was. That's very good that you mentioned that because that's my next question. Great. Is social media, so five years ago, the utopian gleam had definitely been mm. brushed off. It was not... Yeah. It, like I mean, when you know the whole thing about the Arab Spring and it being this great yeah. tool for democratic change across the world, that was gone. Yeah. We had Brexit, we had Trump, we mm-hmm. had accusations of it being manipulated by bad actors and all that kind of crack. Mm-hmm. 
Um, has the academic view of that changed much in the last five years or is it still, has, like, has academia caught up to say it's bad, it's good, or is academia still like, it's indifferent, it's still just a thing? <laughs> academia by nature tends to be largely indifferent because it wants to, uh, for the most part, this is not everybody, but, uh, you know, the, the enlightenment way of doing science is always to stand outside the thing and carefully observe it while trying to disturb it as little as possible. <laughs> and so that exists in sociology too, to an extent where... So people, why do you have a Twitter account, Donald? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't subscribe to this. I'm, I'm, I'm a post-positivist. So positivists look at things, they want a yes or no answer, they want to not be part of the thing itself. But I think good sociology involves you having to actually be embedded in something so you understand its context. I think it would be difficult to look at Twitter or whatever you're looking at, whatever sociological thing where humans are interacting with one another, you need to know much deeper context and background in order to fully understand it. So there's that, those divisions do exist. There are certainly academics who will come down very hard. It's good and it's bad. There were, I think, when we last uh, recorded this, I think I was probably talking about a, a guy called Tim Wu and the who wrote a, a book called Here Comes Everybody, which was about how the internet is just bringing us all in and we're all in one big tent and we're going to be solving everything. And he was very, the Arab Spring proves that Twitter is going to change the world. And it was easy to to kind of brush that aside, and and there's you know we can see that it didn't. Uh, so there there was a kind of a counter movement to that, but then that cycle has kind of gone back and forth, and people find positive things or find particular movements where there was maybe not universal success, but there was a lot of change wrought by those kind of conglomerations of people using these spaces. And we can definitely see that most clearly in countries where there's censorship of other kinds of media. So the Arab Spring happened in an accelerated way there because that was the only way those people could could share uh, stuff that's it's happening still there is a lot of uh, stuff happening uh, in contemporary times in in belarus for example uh, around uh, the you know kind of stuff against lukashenko who i'm sure you saw this week has been outright admitted his meddling with the the stuff that's going on on the border of poland mm-hmm. where they're sending migrants into poland to try and cause a crisis in the eu um so you have states that are you know, led dictatorially by bad actors that are very close control of their their traditional media forms. So you have people using these as back channels. And I think there's unquestionably a remaining value for them. But I think, yes, if you look at the net, good or bad, if you could somehow do a calculus of what is the the, the overall score of, of public discourse and the state of democracy in the world, it's gone down since we last talked. I mean, and it has gone down severely in America. Mm. And that's being recognized now both by First, by the academics, I have to say that the platforms themselves were very reluctant to take any responsibility for this, but they've started to now. And there's much more talk of what are called platform manipulators now. That that term has become much more widespread and, and Twitter themselves have, have been very strong in using that more to, to say that, yes, these things exist, but they are manipulable and they are being heavily manipulated in certain contexts. So yeah, we know the outcome of that. That's a, that's a good segue into talking about regulation. So again, if it has been like almost five years since we had this last episode uh, where we did talk about, you know, the sheen coming off social media and it being, you know, a tool, a tool for bad as well as good. Has there much been done in the past five years in terms of regulation? Has, like, what's there left what there's to left to do is, is still most of the regulation. Actually. It's, pretty much. Yeah. There has been, uh, there's a, I, I like the term security theater that describes what happens uh, at a, an airport when you go through it, where they kind of scan things and they give you the sense that there's uh, there's yeah. security happening, but really actually it's, it's mostly bogus. There's also regulation theater going on, I think in, in social media and very, especially in Facebook. I mean, Facebook has their, uh, the oversight committee that uh, is composed of uh, fairly high level people that they themselves have paid and chosen and uh, who should have an independent voice and should have, you know, 
uh, in theory, some capacity to bring their findings back to Twitter and make them act upon it. But we've seen them ultimately turn out to be fairly toothless in the things that they've uh, but come that, out with. that was like a body organised and appointed by Facebook exactly. itself. Yeah. That was and no... that was as far as they were willing to go. Yeah. So that's why I say it's regulation theatre, because really it was not regulatory. And it was it was a small committee of people who, some of whom I have respect for and who I think were diligent about what they were doing. I think there was a big ethical question about whether they could ever be uh, you know, independent given who's paying them in the first place and that their position exists because of it. I mean, there's a whole thing there. But to be fair to some of them, including ex-Guardian journalists and other people from the UK who were on it, the things that they made in terms of recommendations were solid, but those recommendations were not particularly followed. So it showed that ultimately they're there, they're saying stuff, it's not really making any difference. And I think over time there's been a, a, a sort of an erosion of any faith by certainly most academics I know, but also a lot of users in Facebook in particular for, for having indulged in this. And something I find really interesting and somewhat heartening, recently I was talking, I've talked to, to some friends and friends of friends, and uh, your listeners in other countries may not be aware of Dublin's place in the tech world, but loads and loads of things are headquartered in Dublin because of our ridiculous tax. European headquarters. Yeah, they're European mm-hmm. and Middle Eastern headquarters. And yeah, so so a lot of things are rooted through here. There's a lot of the big tech companies have a presence here. Um, several people recently, I know, have turned down Facebook jobs or have been in the Facebook uh, kind of pipeline, which it, it takes many months to get a job. You're through several rounds of interviews. And a few of them have either told me they wouldn't even consider applying there now or they have been in that process and, and taken themselves out because of the recent stuff with, with Facebook where they're just, they feel it's no longer kind of morally or socially justifiable to tell their friends they work for Facebook. It's like working for a big tobacco. It is, it is. Very I much met like someone that. a couple of weeks ago and I asked them, what did they do for work? And yeah. they said, oh, I work for the most evil corporation in Dublin at the moment. Yeah. And I just blinked and I went, Facebook. Yeah. And were you right? <laughs> of that course. That meant? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, but that's, that's a sea was... change. That would not have been the case when we last recorded this. I mean, it, and mm. one of the things that somebody jokingly, when they were talking about this, said to me that uh, part of the reason was that when the lockdown came, they had to move home. And so a lot of the perks that were sort of uh, smoothing yeah. their journey, the, 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 you know, the nice office and the endless suites and the bring your pets culture. Work, the corporate yeah. culture yeah, 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 that yeah. fell away. And yeah. I mean, they meant that half jokingly, but it was half in joke and half in earnest because I think part of that did change for a lot of people where they did have to reevaluate their life and direction. And I, I think a lot of people started looking at what they do and what's happening in the world and what social media's effect really is and said, actually, do I want to be part of this or not? And uh, that change is very interesting because I'm not sure if if that's a blip or if that's the beginning of something that might grow. Um, so yeah. that's self-regulation in terms of what the corporations mm. have done to try and fix whatever problems they've been accused of yeah. causing. What in terms of government regulation has changed in mm-hmm. the past five years? Well, uh, if we recorded in 2017, as we probably did, uh, GDPR was theorized but not in force at that point. So the, the EU has brought in the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, that came into force in 2018. That has uh, quite a few consequences in terms of how data is managed, which, of course, for social media companies has some some fairly big um, consequences. Uh, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> the social media companies are generally uh, kind of held to account by the country they are headquartered in. And hello again, Dublin. It's us and our teeny tiny data protection office, which is, I think, cynically, uh, is kept deliberately small. I think the, the government are, could be doing greatly more. And I, we, we uh, see a lot of uh, pissed off commentary coming from our, our colleagues in, in Germany in particular, but yeah. in other countries in Central Europe where this is taken greatly more seriously, they have a very low opinion of Ireland's efforts to actually do this supposed regulation it should be doing. And I think we're, we're definitely not doing a great job there. 
In the US more recently, there have been big moves. There's about five pieces of legislation in, in uh, the, the Congress at the moment that aim to create, I mean, it, it doesn't even go as far as GDPR, to be honest, but to create some sort of data protection legislation, some sort of portability and access to data. Um, the beginnings of something there that there has not been there for a long time, I'm not sure if it'll succeed, but it does show that there's a conversation beginning there as well. And I think that's important because America is so founded on these personal liberty values and and this idea of corporations being untouchable that even well, the beginnings that, of this it's is also good. the freedom of expression and free, yes, and free yes, speech yeah, and yeah. as media companies yes yeah like the, there's a fine line between them being data gatherers mm-hmm. and yeah, know, and I mean, platforms. to be fair, they're not, you know, they're they're not really going fully into the free speech stuff. They're they're looking at it as all things in America through a very capitalist, corporatist perspective, where they're saying, well, actually, if companies that are huge like Facebook with Facebook Marketplace or Amazon with the Amazon Marketplace exist, they are putting lots of smaller businesses antitrust. out of business, and yeah. it's a sort of antitrust view, yeah. And so antitrust had kind of been eroded and is now sort of coming back, and that's the direction they're taking with it. But if that that tranche of legislation is successful, it will have big implications for social media because one of the things it would inevitably do, I think, is break up Amazon and probably break up meta facebook uh <laughs> and and i think that's that could be the beginning of something and that has not can happened we, since the the oil baron days of the the first yeah, trusts yeah. theodore roosevelt yeah exactly yeah <laughs> can we briefly mention um biden did actually take some pretty forward action in appointing i can't remember the name of the lady but mm. she was an, a, a young academic yeah who, yeah, I can't remember her name either. I know she wrote loads and loads and loads of stuff about how you have to break up amazon yeah. and now she's yeah. effectively been she was put in charge of the well, basically the antitrust body in yeah. the united states I think, again, there's so much that they have to rebuild there that they've they took away, especially in the Reagan years that, you know, so, so the idea of uh, have you done covered antitrust before for your listeners? Is it clear what, what we're talking about or are we? It, we would have covered a lot of it yeah. back in the Theodore Roosevelt episode. Shout out to that one. Go listen Good. if you haven't. Perfect. Um, yeah. I've listened to it. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah, massive large corporations um, have too much power over yeah. the market and it is actually anti-capitalist to have them yes. with so much power. So. They're, they're, the antitrust is the idea that you break them up and allow business to prosper better mm. and it's better for the consumers. That's exactly it. Great, so great succinct reason, summary. The reason that it has been ignored since the Reagan days is that they focus very much on the benefits to the consumers. Yes. So as long as prices are low, the US government was like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But now we see all those other consequences beyond just prices. So yeah. now the thinking is starting to change. There was also, I think, early on in it, there was a focus on innovation and you know the tech sector benefited from this idea that uh, an unregulated tech space allowed great innovation and was pushing America back to the forefront. And America, I think, especially in the 80s, 90s, was feeling that it had lost its place there to uh, first to, to Japan, then later to China. And I think it, it felt it was falling back. But where it was clawing its way back was in how huge and influential the social media companies founded in and located in Palo Alto, California were. And so there was, I think, an unwillingness to try and take them on that's now finally changing. But it will take much more than what's even currently proposed before this is you know, seriously going to have an effect on, on the, the power that those platforms wield. But to see that even being talked about is an improvement on, I mean, that's how low the bar is, unfortunately, but that's an improvement on, on where we were. And I think the EU is, is going to be much harsher, much more quickly on this. It's taken a lot um, more seriously French. there. Second French. It's often the, the Germans, actually, because some of I, I, I'm teaching stuff currently about GDPR in particular, and I'm really fascinated by the formulation of it. it largely comes from people who had lived in uh, uh, East Germany and so had the experience of the, the 
the perspectives of East and oh, West yeah. Germany there of is living. One the, bread. Yeah, you will eat the bread. Exactly, but, but <laughs> that the state could tell you whatever it like. That the state could hold data on you. That you could be constantly surveilled. All of that stuff. So the the reason why I'm I'm currently the the chair of ethics for my faculty. So I have to read a lot of ethics proposals and whatever. And people universally hate having to do GDPR compliance and they find it a, a troublesome pain in the ass most of the time. But the the thrust behind it comes from this idea that we really do need to be boringly looking at the details of what data is collected mm. about us because that can be very damaging. That can be very problematic. And we, of course, we saw that in social media. This is also the same underlying thing that causes, uh, you know, Facebook to be an effective way to manipulate an electorate is because there's lots of data. You can personally target ads to particular people whose minds you can change. Yeah. And uh oh, look what the outcome of that is. So that leads into the next question. Great. God, I've, I've done this very well. I didn't even get these questions <laughs> in advance, <laughs> yeah, audience. Just... I just want to say how, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, so you, professional. This is what happens uh, when you do the eight, like eight. <laughs> I'm, I'm really hitting my stride at this point. Yeah. Would you briefly explain the concept of surveillance capitalism? We're kind of hitting yeah. a lot of the buzzwords that we haven't talked about yeah, so yeah, far, yeah. just to, to to give people some knowledge before we close the book. I'm I'm really not dropping some names here with with Habermas earlier, but so Zuboff is the the person you should read about uh, the age of surveillance capitalism. Great book. Um, it's the idea that there is a kind of way of doing business that involves data being central, data and information being central to the generation of profit. And so this is obvious to us now, a little less obvious maybe a few years ago, that really what uh, is being sold in the, the case of, of Google or Facebook is, uh, you know, data, profiling data about people that you can do much better marketing, much more targeted stuff if you can get a very good profile of the people you are marketing. And surveillance capitalism is the idea that you can surveil people, you can look at them, capture stuff about them, and you can use that to generate profit. And that the, there's a, a kind of a space within which you can uh, operate purely by gathering and selling data about people. Can we test something right now, actually? Sure. Um, hey, Google, are you listening to me? You can tell I'm listening or responding when the lights on top turn on, spin, run or pulse. I don't trust her. Well, that's reassuring. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, th those things are a good example. Like, th th those are a very obvious part of surveillance capitalism is having an always-on microphone in your house that is sending information. I have three. To central <laughs> there you go. But I mean, <laughs> they're getting me in stereo. <laughs> <laughs> but most people do, and most and their phones are doing it, or they're you know, like we're using Siri or we're using whatever. And there's there's some efforts by some companies, and it's a small subset of the total who are trying to be a bit more transparent about where is that processing done? Is that done on the device and it never leaves? Or is that being sent to somewhere else where it's being used? Is it being listened to by a person? Is it part of, you know, a, a profile that's generated about you or your voice or your likes or your buying habits? And I mean, there is just such a tremendous amount of data. We don't even know how much there is actually, because some of it is covered by the trade secrets of those companies. So at one point, many years ago now, probably close to the time we, we recorded the last podcast, Facebook during the the um, the findings uh, from the the uh, post Cambridge Analytica scandal, when when there was kind of court proceedings there, some of case of Facebook's uh, kind of data collection paradigms were shown during that, and there was over fifty thousand individual pieces of data on each user in some of the presentations there. I'm sure it's probably more now, but these are kind of numbers between zero and one that say how strong are you on this particular category? You know, like are you a zero point five on loves cats or whatever? And I, I mean, we can imagine there's probably many, many tens of thousands of those for, for each user based on their interactions and their likes and their whatever. But that kind of that surveillance capitalism, being able to to generate highly specific, configurable 
and targetable ad campaigns to people based on their likes and dislikes in a very niche way like that is hugely effective. I mean, it's it's why these companies make so much money. Um, and it's it's something that it's they're not going to give that up easily, and they're they're fighting it very strongly in the countries where there's any attempt to to rein it in. But that's where we're going to have to go. So Apple have taken a bit of a stand, mm. kind of surprisingly, around say like certain permissions, like on your iPhone. With the last major Apple uh, iOS update, you now have the permit. You have the ability to change the permissions of certain apps yeah. from like tra- stopping tracking you on like an on a operating system level. And they've also done stuff with like their Safari web browser to stop um, a lot of these marketing trackers, these like Facebook yeah. pixels or whatever, from yeah. tracking you as you browse across the internet. Is that to go back to an earlier point you said, is that like a bit of theater and they're just as guilty as other big tech companies in this regard? Or do they really like seem to care about privacy at a, a, a well, level? <laughs> so I, I think, OK, first of all, that, what they've done is effective. I think it's actually very useful, some of what they've done, if you, if you care about your own privacy. But I would, with my sceptical academics hat on, whatever shape hat that is, uh, <laughs> I, must, I must get one of those sceptical hats. Pope like and sparkly and rainbowy. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With a big light on it that I can shine, the light of justice that I can shine on. It's, a, I'm it's a little propeller hat that spins when he's sceptical about something. <laughs> um, I would say that part of what's going on there is undoubtedly that um, the huge almost monopoly that. Uh, Apple originally had in the smartphone market was very, very significantly eroded by Google in particular with um, the the various Google devices and the very many other devices that could not run iOS, but could run Android. And so one of the things that Apple was able to do was say, well, actually, in the privacy space, we're way ahead of this. And so there is a massive market advantage to them to trump privacy all the time and to constantly be saying, well, we're the only one that's really, truly safe. And we're the one that's, you know, your data is not being, uh, you know, insidiously used in, in various marketing things. So while it is a good thing and while I'm happily welcome it and I, I use Apple devices and I'm delighted I use that, uh, that relay thing they have to, to obscure your IP address. I use their other kind of um, settings. I use Safari as my main browser because I think it's good. Uh, I do think that, you know, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because it also gives them uh, a, a, a kind of a leverage point that they can increasingly put pressure back into a very contested marketplace to say, next time you're changing your phone, shouldn't you change it to the one that's better at privacy? Shouldn't you maybe yeah. get rid why of the is, Android? So. Why is that a negative thing? Why is it like, I mean, they're, it's they're, not, they're, I'm just saying it's not they innocent. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's not a charity. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but it's the way I guess it's it, yeah the way they talk about it is like they are the savior of this. Of they do, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I mean. That like, like, yeah. it is made to appear as if it is an altruistic uh, yeah. kind of benefit to society, and that's that's their only goal. But I, I'm just saying, yeah. Uh, in this case, they are both aligned. What they want to do is sell more phones, and while they're doing that, it happens to give us all slightly better privacy if we use their stuff. So maybe that's good yeah. to the point as well that. Governments can't get access to the information, mm-hmm. which is yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty important. Which is very places. important, actually. Yeah. And I, I mean, that has been tested many times with Apple. So the US government in particular has time and again gone back to them and said, for reasons of terrorism, for reasons of blah, 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 you know, the, the, using the, the strongest things they have, you need to crack this phone for us or you need to give us a backdoor into your system so we can always get around your, uh, your your encryption. And they haven't. And I think that's good because, you know, other companies have, have bowed to that in the past. Um, and so they're, they are holding a line there, but I think their more important place where they're making a contribution is in internet tracking, exactly what Richie mentioned there. So the getting rid of cookie tracking, not being able to, to hold individualized data about your previous buying habits and even your previous web browsing habits. And, you know, targeted ads had become 
sufficiently creepy that many people, very understandably, I think we talked about this pre- previously, thought mm. that their phones were listening to them or thought, God, that's far too, you know, creepily exact for, for me. But it, this is how they were doing it. it. It was not that they were listening to you and writing it down. That's just a simpler explanation. It's that the right. level of detail gatherable about you was so high. It, it's so much more insidious than just listening. It is, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, they yeah, know, yeah. They know you better than you yeah. know yourself yeah. on all, like on thousands and thousands and thousands of data points that they're able yeah. to predict. They don't need to listen. They're much more efficient. But th- that should worry us too because what most people do is they take the simpler idea and they say, well, I've turned off microphone access to for WhatsApp, so phew, I'm safe now and I have a little bit of tape <laughs> that I put over my webcam. They'll never stop me. And then they go and they browse on Google Chrome and they're wondering two days later why they're getting a very niche but ad for whatever. Can I put my hand up and say, I actually don't care. About, I don't care that about is, being tracked yeah, yeah. for advertising purposes. If if I lived in a country where, I mean, if Ireland ever wanted to be a fascist dictatorship, yeah. you know, we do it really badly mm, and we'd all fuck mm, up. Mm. But if, you know, we did have competent dictators here in Ireland, I won't be more afraid. But because we don't and we're not likely to, mm. I honestly don't care. Yeah. But am I stupid? No, and you're in the overwhelming majority of people. And I again, please read Zubov's book about this. because <laughs> She talks about the same thing. Um that it, like ultimately it's a, okay. oh you have oh, right, okay. <laughs> great great like it's that is the, that's the case that's where we're living at the moment is that most people are fully aware of this and they know that this is going on but the convenience to them is greater than the hassle of undoing it mm. and that's that's the problem and so for most people they think exactly as you do that really uh, what's the worst that can happen I'll get slightly more targeted ads and it's that we need to be looking at some of the other worst happenings including the capital riot and things like that and say well this is fueled by the same thing so we'll have we'll have more targeted ads or we'll you know we'll have these things that we can shirk off but we will also have manipulation of elections. We will also have the hideous post-truth society we live in where, you know, people are, are skeptical about everything, don't believe in vaccination, don't believe in all of the, the stuff they don't believe in. So there, there's there's a, a larger picture to this that I think is is harder to connect to because we're all very individualized about what is convenient to us and what is the easiest situation for us. And this is not, I'm not attacking you, Steve, for saying this at all. I understand that I that's the Donald is saying the that I'm only like um, three targeted ads away from storming Leinster House. I, I, it could go that way, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. Leinster House, I think, is probably the easiest parliament to storm in the world. I think you probably show up, <laughs> offer a package of potatoes to the guard who's outside and say, do you mind if I just pop in and take over? Yeah. I've so. done that before. <laughs> and I've gotten in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but there's the, like, uh, again, we, we have a, a privileged viewpoint on all of this because we live in Ireland and we live, Ireland is in the EU and we have, you know, like there, there's a, a way of looking at this where um, we, we probably need to take a wider perspective and that's very hard to is do. He, that's that's the, the tough question always. Not to go too much into it because it's a really obscure and anecdotal con- conversation that I don't, I, it's it, not even that, but it's, it's very post positive. I think mm. We focus way too much on the United States. Yes. The United States yes. is fucked up for many reasons, mm. including the, the prevalence of social media. Yeah. But I think we take too much guidance from how fucked up that place is yeah. and then interpret it on, on how social media interacts with democracies elsewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I just, yeah. I'm, sometimes I worry that we, we spend too much time worrying about it. Yeah, I, I agree with you to an extent. I think I think there's definitely, a, a, I mean, the US has always writ large in everything that's, you know, political analysis everywhere, social media, certainly that's, you know, we, we use those as, as examples. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that that means we should care less about it. I, I still think there, there are enough um, pieces of evidence for the, the bad side of it within Ireland specifically, but within the EU more generally as well. I mean, there were there were riots yesterday in, in Rotterdam by anti-vax people who, you know, had 
formulated their ideas, had shared them via Facebook principally, but other social media sources as well, and had taken to the streets. The same thing has happened. I mean, albeit in a more ludicrous way in in Ireland for the most part like we're, we're the majority sure, is, yeah. is more against the it in RT Ireland are, so far are, yeah. are doing the QAnon stuff like draining kid children's yeah yeah, yeah 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 and, and note it, that RTE is often targeted because that's one of the things that we have left that the US certainly doesn't and that I I I'm very happy we have is, is a state broadcaster. I think I think Peter Kavanaugh yeah. was talking about this last week. Exactly, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, we we really need to care about that more because, mm. yeah, when that goes and the only thing you're relying to, on is profit making uh, media platforms of different sorts. Oh boy, we're mm. we're in more trouble I mean, than I think. The US has PBS, but no one watches it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean it is still just about hanging on, and but even that they want to get rid of Sesame Street. That's a a constant conservative talking point is that they don't like these things. They on want yeah. to kill Elmo? Yeah, and now, isn't Big Bird in a fight with Ted Cruz currently? Like, isn't yes. that, again, we're talking about America, <laughs> yes. but like, but, yes. but really, yes. yes, like this is yes. so on a railroad. I've kind of given up social media over the past year. Good for you. And for the most part, I'm happier. I'm a happier person because yeah. of it. But yeah. occasionally, I'll miss out on things like Big Bird fighting Ted Cruz. <laughs> I got, I Start to question my decision. <laughs> got, no, 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 it's fine. I got this from a YouTube video, an SNL yeah. sketch, right. so yeah, 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 where yeah. the you know the, the lady who impersonates Ted Cruz sets up his own conservative street. Ah, <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, yes, very good. Uh, yeah. oh, I must look at that. Yeah, check that out. But um, yeah, uh, but that, that's I mean, you know, okay, that's that's where public discourse is in in Twitter in America, I guess. America, but, yeah, again, yeah, America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so we've we've talked about Facebook kind of you know here and there throughout. Um, this this chat but mm. I'd like to talk about it a little bit more explicitly now because mm. it is very much in the, in the zeitgeist for kind of like two reasons on the one hand they're under renewed scrutiny for like around the, the whistleblower and the mm. revelations around um, their internal teams realising how damaging yeah. uh, Instagram in particular was for their teen demographics but how yeah. they were choosing not to do anything about it because it hurt their profits uh, and a bunch of other things that came out of the, those whistleblower revelations. Uh, but then on the other hand they've also gone ahead and rebranded the parent company to mm. uh, Meta <laughs> yeah. and there's that big keynote about the Metaverse and how this mm. is going to be the future. Is the latter a distraction towards the former? Mm-hmm. Uh, or is as the, are these two th- like is this something that they were going to do anyway and I, is I, actually I, indicative of the future ahead, or just before Donald answers in a, in a succinct way I will bring up that remember they brought out the, the Facebook Bitcoin just after mm-hmm. Trump got elected yeah, yeah. to try and distract yeah. everything yeah. I just remembered that <laughs> as in yeah, is the metaverse? They have a bit of a playbook. Is the they, metaverse they that, and it's so, I, uh, it's so transparent. I mean, uh, yeah, I, certainly the the theatrics of that was was well timed for trying to distract mm. a bit. I do think that they probably are looking at the space beyond because I mean they must be looking at their demographics and saying oh shit we're losing users especially younger ones there's certainly I mean TikTok has eroded the hell out of their their user base and and the user base that most matters to them the younger component of it on Instagram Mm -hmm. even they had long ago uh, skewed very old on on Facebook so Facebook is the one that you know your mammy and your granny still uses but most younger people have, have never even had a Facebook account at this point except that they've had a meta account for their Instagram or whatever. So mm. like they, they must be looking at that and going, oh, shit, we need the next thing. And I'm sure that the metaverse, whatever nonsense it is, I mean, that, that ad was. Well, we're, we're recording in the metaverse currently. Are we though? Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm a pineapple and you're an orange. <laughs> like, yeah, I, like what, what I, I mean, poor, not poor Mark Zuckerberg, because I don't he's know why the I said that. He's the opposite of that, in fact. But, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> very opposite of that. But like, he, I, I, 
try as he might, he cannot appear human at all. And that no. that ad was insane, or that not the ad, but that keynote was insane. That woman who he speaks to who who can't use her hands like a normal person and looked like she was a <laughs> Jim Henson created weather workshop over animated <laughs> insane person. Like it all just looks so utterly mental that. <laughs> You know, but it, it worked in that it caught the news cycles and everyone talked about that for a while and, and didn't talk about Frances Huygen and what she was saying, in, you know, the day before. So, yes, it's distracting. But yes, I do think they're going to have to try and find new places to put us and new services. And there probably will be some insane VR thing because they have the Oculus stuff already, don't they? And, they, you know, the, mm. it's going to go in that direction. I'm it's, sure. no one, that, it's a total fucking flop. No one is going to do that. No one is going to get, we're not all going to put on VR headsets. Like I was thinking about this earlier in preparation for the episode, not like actually, you know, doing proper thought, but just mm. anecdotally thinking this, this sounds like. Why the, do proper thought now? I mean, it's been exactly. five years. Yeah, this sounds like, <laughs> this, sound, this sounds like the, this, this sounds like you're trying, you're trying to make in, into reality what was in sci-fi movies in the nineties. Yeah. yeah, there is a lot of that. But yeah. the Snow Crash, it's, I yeah. think the, the term metaverse is li- literally lifted from Snow Crash. Yeah. Snow- but like. People are not going to put on VR headsets and talk to each other like that. People are not going to wear Google glasses so they can have uh, like a, a fucking Terminator style interface over the world as they see it. I, I, like I think we've that, tried and tested these products and they haven't yeah. been true. The thing that the things that end up being futuristic are way more surprising and confusing. Things like social media. Nobody fucking predicted social media the way it has the way it's turned out. That's true. I mean, the, some of that I think there there is an extent I think to which the predictions of sci-fi are sometimes used as a guide for stuff. And I do think, I mean, Apple... Fucking dweebs with billions of dollars like fucking Mark Zuckerberg. Well, yeah, but but because they've read this stuff, because they're nerdy like we three are, they, they like, those are were their reference points. Are you looking at Warhammer points. table when you say that? I, I'm looking at everything in this room, Steve. It doesn't stop at the Warhammer. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, so I, like there, there's a, a guy, you know, who's, who's a kind of interaction design person called Chris Nossel in, in the US, and he wrote a, a book called Make It So, which is about the influence that Star Trek's uh, kind of user interfaces and devices have had on the way we now use. Oh, and, yeah. and, and Apple phones and, look like next generation. They, they do. They're tricorders. They're you know they like mm. holding small people and and someone at some point makes the decision that they look this way. And even within their interfaces, there's a lot of parallels. He goes through a lot of different kind of sci-fi uh, kind of archetypes and and particular sci-fi influential movies and stuff, and says like, isn't this why this is this way? And of course, you know unintentionally or intentionally, the designers who make these things have made it having seen those references, having taken those things on. And I do think there is a strong link between what is the the dominant kind of view of the future from sci-fi and the choices that a lot of the people who design that future make. And certainly Tron is affecting how the metaverse will look because we need to have a picture as the people who make it. Mm. And so the, those people, that's where some of their, their reference points are coming from. So there's, there is a connectivity there. I don't think it's the, the case always that these things come out of nowhere or, or completely novel. I think there's a big kind of deep history in arts and entertainment a lot of the time that, that this stuff comes out of. And, and that's quite interesting. That's a whole separate, if, if your thing still ran, I mean, you could have done that podcast. <laughs> Maybe Roman Mars will do it on his because that's actually his area, isn't it? So. Yeah, I don't know. I just I think the metaverse is definitely going to be a total flop, and in like no yeah, one's going to be. I agree. About I agree. It will be. It will be hard to conceive of most people popping on an Oculus to talk to one another so that they can look like a, a fish as they do it or whatever. I mean, it's, you can do it on Zoom for free. Jared does it every time we try and play D anD D. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird novelty for its own sake. In that case, I do think maybe there's there's niche stuff that like I, I've seen a few good pieces of augmented reality stuff of AR apps on phones that are quite useful. Mm. 
Um, I think probably the, the commonest one that I've seen in widespread use is IKEA have one that allows you to place things in the room and see the size they would be. That's that's a very useful thing. Apple have started yeah. doing that for some of their products. Now, if you go to look at an Apple product, you can have an AOR insertion of like, how big will this iMac be on my desk or whatever? Like, it's, you know, those sorts of things, because they have a slightly practical use, I can see them creeping in. But I, yeah, I can't imagine the hassle being worth it to appear as a whatever in a metaverse setting in order to have a chat that you would you know, have had another let's take a Let's take a quick aside and just talk about what our metaverse avatars would be. Don, what would you, would you finally live your Angela Lansbury dreams? <laughs> oh, good idea. Yeah, maybe so. Um, I, I don't think I could stick to one. I mean, that would be my, my Halloween costumes uh, yeah. yearly are my, my source right. of great joy. And so I was, that, that was the, the biggest devastation for me last year was, I'm going to get in trouble with my husband for saying this because I got married last year and we didn't have a honeymoon uh, and we didn't have a proper wedding. But my biggest disappointment last year was that we couldn't dress up for Halloween because um, <laughs> I really I love going all out for Halloween. So I would I would like yeah there's there's a capacity in the metaverse to really you know do some sort of insane costumery in a way that could not be done any other way. So I I think I would want to change them frequently to whatever draggy weirdness. It would always be something <laughs> insane and 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 over the top and draggy. That's what I I like to do. What about yourself? Steve, would you, uh, I guess if if you're doing that, I might just take your physical form if you're not using it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're always going to be Ursula from Little Mermaid, I'll just be Donald. Oh, or I, I just something very inconspicuous and I can just like be there and observe. Like a, a can of Coke in. on a Creepy. table. A can of, yeah, or like a lamp, like a, like a lampshade over. Don't tell you what, Donald's body with lampshade over his head. Best of both worlds. I can <laughs> right. corner right. if I want to listen in. Beautiful. What about you, Steve? Uh, obviously, um, the uh, the the car from Cars, <laughs> Lightning McQueen. Lightning McQueen. I couldn't remember. But his with name. the face of Teddy Roosevelt on the with, front row, <laughs> with, with a big mustache and a monocle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, there, there are things like that where where you know people want to craft identities for themselves in, in places, and that's that's been studied for many many years in, in all sorts of video mm. games. And we the, talked about that. In we did. We did. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Like like so. I, I mean, there is an appeal to that, undoubtedly, but it's just the, but not to the point that people are going to use it. No, on, that's on the yeah, billion I, level scale. I think you're right. I think it's it's not, like that's a niche thing, and I don't think that's this thing you do when you want to have a chat with your friends or whatever. In the so the, the particular context they gave it, the the level of ubiquity and normalization they gave it i don't think it's going to achieve that in the near future yeah. uh, in i think you hit no. the nail on the head richie yeah. by saying it's, a, it's an intentional distraction yeah yeah, mm. yeah yeah so i think we've hit the list of our questions apart from yeah is will there be a facebook in five years will they have broken it up will people have quit it well, yeah so well there will still be a facebook it'll be a meta probably that gets broken because it's the parent company now won't it so there's also the risk of just like the member base just dying of natural well, causes there is. at some yeah, point. Yeah. See, but Guinness, Guinness fixed this, and if Guinness can do it, then maybe Facebook can too. Back in the uh, 2000s, uh, the Guinness Corporation were terrified that all their customers were going to die because it was mostly oh, right, okay. But they managed that rebrand, and that's why they got all them funky ads. But the thing with the rebrands oh, always yeah. is that you, you do them where they skip generations. So like part of people not being on Facebook who are younger is that because it's uncool because their parents have a Facebook account. So why would they want to be mm. in the same space? But the the next generation again so when the current generation ah. have kids those kids will be like well let's go to the retro cool thing of facebook that's so vintage and <laughs> i don't know I'm, that's that, that's a wild prediction but maybe maybe you'll see that sort of like it's it's so uncool it's cool again thing happen where it goes around in a circle i do think they'll it'll be preserved because there's certainly people who are still avid users of it now who will not be dead in 10 years and so we'll still want it for sharing photos and whatever the hell so 
Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, like not, it's not going WhatsApp, away. They still have them. Yes. Even yeah, if they yeah, do get yeah, split yeah, up. Yeah. Do you think there'll be more government regulation in general? Like, I mean, mm. we didn't really talk about this, but because these corporations are so global now, they almost don't have home countries. Yeah, they are almost yeah. like some, uh, you know, the, the tortoise media platform in the UK. Yeah. They have a weekly newsletter called the Tech States where they treat them as countries in their own right. Yeah, yeah. Because most of these tech companies that we're talking about yeah. would be in the top 10 GDP yeah. you know, tables of countries. Yeah. So like... How does Ireland, if it ever felt like it, regulate Facebook? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it. Uh, I, I, Ireland will not do it, given the choice, because uh, we have, again, a massive ethical conflict of interest between but the jobs, the jobs that's it's making. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're very reluctant to do it. I think the EU will force that. I think, I, I think that's one of the things. The EU is very good at doing the boring shit that the countries that are part of it don't want to do for themselves and that they can say, oh, the mean old EU made us change this law. <laughs> and Ireland has done this many times on other things that we didn't want to change. Like, it's, it is... Legal for me to be gay currently because the EU told Ireland, cop the fuck on and change it. You know, that went to the High Court in Ireland and went to the Supreme Court even. And, and you know, it was ultimately the European Court of Justice there on, and on hundreds of other issues. And it'll be the same with these. They're boring things that countries themselves don't want to have to take on. And so thankfully we have a bureaucracy that specializes in this sort of thing that comes and kicks our ass every now yeah. and again and i think that's it's that's not a bad thing actually especially corporate regulation especially corporate regulation yeah yeah and i mean the eu is it's definitely you know it has its own problems it's certainly not uh, without without many faults and failures and it certainly takes a very neoliberal view about how economies and money and all that should work in the first place but it's still ultimately helpful in trying to bring some sense of a fair regulation to things that countries left to their own devices won't do. So I think there will be more of that. I also do think that people are becoming more critical and certainly more sensitive to the, some of those damages that people have willingly or unwillingly turned a blind eye to before. I think there was definitely some, you know, there was, there was a good level of knowledge about the damage of Instagram to young teen girls, particularly for quite a while. There was no surprise when that stuff was leaked. The The shock there was that it was so blatantly known internally and not nothing was done about it. But Colleagues in my own school in, in DCU could have told you that, you know, many, many years mm -hmm. ago. My colleague Debbie Ging has done fantastic work on, on uh, the promotion of anorexia, for example, within, uh, which is hideous, but very prevalent within. <laughs> having a snoring dog here really sets a strange... Arch. <laughs> Mark, shut up. <laughs> a strange, sinister background there. But <laughs> that sort of stuff, I think the general public are more willing to engage with now. And that's, it's just harder to ignore that. And I think that will that that's a source of change, too. That's going to make people question whether those things are OK anymore, whether their children should have unfettered access to the Internet, for example, which is certainly a problem of the current generation, was that their parents were often not tech savvy enough to put filters on what their kids were seeing. And I think that's, you know, that, that was definitely a, a, an issue that is starting to be resolved. I think we're being a little bit more yeah. critical than we were there. Because people in so, their 30s who grew up with the internet exactly. know exactly how No, just how fucked up yeah. we turned out and, yeah, <laughs> and the damage it's done to our brains. So, yeah, now thinking of like, what would it have been like to get that age nine? Yeah. Yeah. Age nine, don't play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. The timing was bad as well. It was. Um... I almost don't want this episode to end because I'm sad that this is our last recording with you, Donald. Oh, thank you very much. It's It's been lovely. I, I, Who's going to win Eurovision? Yeah, I, I mean, how can I predict that? I didn't even get it right last year, by the way. <laughs> you were so wrong last year. I was year. so wrong. I did not see that, that outcome at all. I was, I, And I was taken in by, by some 
social media manipulation because actually uh, Malta were uh, doing all sorts of, they, they sunk huge amounts of money into social media marketing and in, they spent money directly betting on themselves so that they would rise in the betting odds. And so Fuck. it would appear that it was a foregone conclusion that they were going to, oh, which was wow. actually quite smart in a way, but, you know, also terribly corrupt. Uh, but it, it worked. It, it did backfire because they did terribly. And it also, it, it created a, a strange incentive for people not to, bother voting for them including in my own house we watched the Eurovision at home as we had to because it was locked down and uh, we, we were kind of talking about who we'd, who we'd send our vote for and uh, my husband Gary didn't vote for Malta even though he loved the song because he's like well so many people already will yeah. that fact. and I was the same I thought oh I'll give them one but actually I also really liked Ukraine so I'll throw them a few and ultimately terrible uh, turnout for, for, for Malta so um, yeah next year definitely I'm going to it though so I'm I'm really excited I, I have booked my tickets and I can't wait to go what? back again. Yes, yes, so it's going to be in Turin and uh, I, I got an Airbnb already lined up and I'm dying to go back to it because it was such fun when I went to Lisbon. So yeah, if you, if you want a good party in, in May, come to Turin. It's great crack. We might just go to your empty flat and you have can. our own little rager there. You do, do, do. Steve, yeah. if you're up for it. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah. You can sleep in the kitchen floor or something. It'll be grand. Airbnbs don't mind Not a bit though. No. Um, yeah. Th- again, thank you, Donald, for again being our most... Thank you very uh, much for having me. Tenured guest. And it's it's lovely that, you know, 10 years ago you were my favorite lecturer. And then more recently you were a lecturer of Steve's. And <laughs> note, note the change there. You were a lecturer of Steve's. <laughs> a lecturer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I had stronger competition with Steve. He's, I, I, I don't okay want to speak favoritism going behalf. elsewhere. He, he, had, he had some good people. I in, don't blame in, Donald. I, I blame the module. Yeah, yeah. I, I was teaching him, I was teaching him quite a, a boring <laughs> nah. module there. Yeah. Well, I got to make fun animations with Donald. So yes, we, we had we had a more yeah. fun time in, in yeah, programming for the web and various things like that that were yeah, yeah exactly. more creative. And well, so it's nice that you get to carry that over here and like then teach us, keeps teaching us still <laughs> all, years later. Yeah. Um, so thank you for doing that. No, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been always lovely. And I love, I, I, I've been a regular listener, obviously, for a long time, too. Um, but I think that, yeah, it, it's as I said, I'm really happy that it's going out on a high that it's it's that you're, you're wrapping it up while it's still a very you know, solid, listenable, quality podcast. But some of your episodes have been, oh, God. God. I was trying, I tried. I made the effort there. You know what? Shut it down. Fuck is all. This is, it's always been rubbish. Yeah, well, what you were wasn't, saying. Wasn't my very first appearance one where I criticised you for fart sounds? Belching. And, and, and the, no, I, it was that you were belching and not farting. And yes. I said farting and you said, no, we never have farts on this. And here the circle closes <laughs> and, a, and a great fart leads us out. That weird. wasn't even a soundboard. Yeah. R- oh, Richie, yeah. Richie, we leave nothing behind but a cloud of stink in our wake. This is, <laughs> this is the end. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. Thanks for the memories. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.